Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. We have opened a series entitled How God Changes Us, and since you missed that first series, I'll be giving a brief summary of where we were. But we're trying to grapple with the fact of how does our life really change? How do we go from where we are without just playing games to where we come to a place where really we see ourselves becoming different, hopefully better? Change is a universal phenomenon. It's all around us. We see it all the time. I know some of you appreciate just the change in the weather that took place this week when we had that nice high-pressure system come over our state and kind of deliver us, so to speak, from the dog days of August. And that first high-pressure system, in a sense, signals change. There's a season that's going to stop. There's a season that's going to begin, and we rejoice in that. There are others of us who, coming back after a long summer, uh, school starting, we kind of catch up on each other's lives. We notice each other's kids, and we notice, boy, there's been some incredible changes that have taken place in their life. They look so much bigger, and they look so much different. Maybe they looked at you, and you look a little bigger as well after uh, eating your way through the summer. Or maybe a little grayer. Maybe a little more stress is evident on your countenance. Or maybe there's a twinkle in your eye because during the summer there were some good changes that were made that, that made a difference in who you are. Some of us have changed jobs and that signaled a change. Sometimes for good, sometimes not so good. Some of us have retired. We've kind of gone through a passage of a new season of life. Some of us have changed schools. That's also signaled some major changes are about to occur. Some of us us have become single again. And that says we're going to face, if not already, some major changes. You know, when you think back, even on your life, let's say ten years ago, and you think about where you were and what you were, and you look at yourself now, You see, these massive changes have occurred. That's because change is universal in all of life. Our world has changed. Our country has changed. The issues have changed. Twenty years ago, drugs were a hit. Twenty years later, drugs are the scourge of our land. Twenty years ago, we wondered and we fought over and we discussed whether a black child could have a quality education. Now we wonder, 20 years later, whether anyone can have a quality education. And we struggle with those things. 20 years ago, the label made in Japan was something to be laughed at. 20 years later, that same label is a threat to many of us in our industry. 20 years ago, communism seemed like it was a step ahead. 20 years later, it seems like it's about to belly up. Change. It's universal. And it's all around us. But there is some change, and it's the change that we are focusing on in this series, that is not universal, and it's not natural, and oftentimes we don't see it, even within the church of Jesus Christ. It's easy to grow up. It just happens, doesn't it? You just wake up and you're a little bit different. It is not easy to grow good. It doesn't just happen. 
And yet as Christians, as we saw in this last message, there is a longing that is deep within us. And I think that longing occurred when Jesus Christ entered our life. He came in there and He carved out a place for Himself in our spirit. And He changed something about us. And it, the change was a longing to be different, to be good. And that's expressed here in this chapter, Romans chapter 7. Some of us long to be pure. Now right now we may be immoral. And even in that immorality, though as a Christian, if indeed the Spirit of Christ is in us, there's this longing that says, this isn't right. I wish I could change. Some of us long to be under control. Because constantly see, peppered throughout our existence, experiences of being out of control. Some of us long to be at peace, but in our home we feel like we're in a rut of anger, maybe even violence. Some of us long to be right, but at this point we know we're wrong. Some of us long to tell the truth, but we've just gotten to this habit since we were young of always exaggerating the truth and lying and trying to cover ourselves with things that are not true. Some of us long to be transparent but we're afraid. So we live a life of deceit. But deep within us, there's this need to be different. And yet in all the change that's occurring around us in our country, as well as in our families, as well as within our lives, it is interesting to me that this longing of growing good, this desire to be different, it seems to elude us as Christians. Oftentimes, there's not a great deal that has changed in us, even after we've been a Christian for a number of years. You know, Paul, I think, capsulizes all I've said with one statement. It's kind of the platform we're going to launch from this morning in verse 19. In chapter 7, he says, For the good, and remember, we long to grow good. For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. You know, one of the reasons I embarked on this series is because I don't want anyone here to have that as their epitaph. <laughs> you know, a time where they come in their life where we finally put you away and the statement of your life was, I long to be good, but the practice just never got there. I never came around. I never changed. So how can I be fulfilled in this? How can this desire to be different be fulfilled? How can I be changed and grow up and grow good while I'm growing up? Those are great questions, and those are questions that need to be explored in depth. And we're going to do that today and continuing in the rest of the series. Now, let me summarize a few thoughts I had in the first message. You know, in the first time when I stood before you, we addressed those questions about change. And I pointed out to you that real change, that is, change in character, takes several ingredients. We often want to opt for a quick fix. One thing that's just going to change us. But it usually involves three elements. Time, my effort, my work, and God's grace, His resources. Those are the three general elements that are involved in change. There may be today one-minute managers, but let me tell you, there is no one-minute morality in America today. 
Change in character will take time, effort, and God's resources. And that's important for me to say because oftentimes, whether it's the church or whether it's certain spiritual leaders, we have tended to imply that in coming to Christ, there is instantaneous change in life. Now that's true and it's not true. Yes, God invades our life. Yes, God resurrects our spirit. Yes, God puts this longing within us. And yes, God presents us with a host of resources that we can use to change. But the change of working that good that's now within, without, takes time, work, and God's resources. Unfortunately, we tend to produce people who stand before us and say, I came to Jesus my marriage was instantaneously healed. I'm off all drugs. I have no addictions. My life is almost perfect. And we listen at that. And we hear that again and again. And we walk out. And if you're like me, after a while that begins to work against me. Because I begin to think, well, if that's God's standard, oper standard operating procedure, what's wrong with me? Because I came to Christ and my marriage didn't all of a sudden totally change. And I wasn't healed of all my habits. And everything didn't work out. And I found myself falling into the same ruts of lust and greed and jealousy again and again and again. So evidently, we conclude erroneously, that we must somehow be the perverted exception to God's grace. <laughs> Different than all the rest. You know, like you showed up at a party with cutoffs on, it was coat and tie. We just feel different. Well, you know, the reality is, and it's what I pointed out to you last time, the reality is you're not different. The reality is, is that you're the rule, not the exception. You're normal. Messed up? Yes. Normal? Yes. We are in this together as imperfect people. And remember, I said last week, or three weeks ago, we must remember there is no one good, there is no one who has full understanding, there is no one righteous. We have a troubled heart. And it takes time to correct those things. We found that God does two things in offering us salvation. Number one, He offers us His death, which is symbolized in the cross. And what the cross represents, and Billy Graham will preach this tonight, is that God accepts you messes and all. That's the good news. And you can come down and be accepted just where you are based on His forgiveness in His Son. But that's not all of salvation. Unfortunately, that's most of what's being preached, but that's not all. That's only one part. The death of Christ is only one half of the Gospel. The other half, and it's the half offered to the church, is the life of Christ. Because that salvation doesn't stop with the cross. It goes on to the resurrection. And what's offered in the life of Christ is God not only accepting us in our messes through His death, but Him through His life saying, hey, now let's clean the mess up. Let's change. That's called sanctification. It's becoming different. And God offers a host of resources. He gives us a new desire. He gives us new people. He gives us new instruction. He gives us a new spirit. And He asks us to be different. But you know what happens? Somehow, we have all those resources and we have that longing, but we can't get it together. We can't change. And I have a word to you as to why you can't change if you find yourself in that place. If you haven't seen certain things turn over, this is a difficult thing to say. But I believe it's the truth. How do I grow 
good. Now this morning I want to get more specific. And what I want to begin with is what I think is the best place to begin when you talk about change at the beginning, right? And the beginning of life is the heart. That's the beginning place, thus the title of the message. Now when I say heart, I'm not talking about, of course, your literal heart. The Bible defines your heart is that secret resource within you, that immaterial part of you where you think about yourself, where you think about your plans, your desires, your dreams, your hopes, your wishes. It's where you deliberate. That's the heart. But what goes on in the heart ultimately comes out in the life, doesn't it? In your actions, in your speech, in your habits. That we know for sure. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart. Look at it. Be sure of what it's saying. Because he goes on to say, it influences everything in your life. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And nowhere do we get a better insight into the heart of man through some men that relate to you and me than in Matthew 26. It's a familiar story, but you turn over there for just a moment most of the time this is used to talk about prayer, and certainly prayer is in this passage, but I want to take a little bit deeper look because we will see much about ourselves and why it is that change is so hard for us. But it will not be easy to say. Look with me in verse 36. Now, you'll recognize we're at the place... In Jesus' life, at the end of His ministry, where He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing death. And here's what Matthew tells us. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there to pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and he prayed saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Thy will be done. And again He came and He found His disciples sleeping and their eyes were heavy. And He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then He came to His disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Now I want to ask you, were these men willing to pray with Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. But somehow, they weren't able to pray. Why? The phrase that really begs for our investigation, that we dive in, is found in verse 41 when Jesus just simply says, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Why was that true? I mean, these weren't ordinary believers. These were committed, at least in our minds, committed believers. They had left everything. 
They had given their lives up for Christ. They had been put in peril and danger. They had preached before hostile crowds. And now here they were in this garden and they're not able to pray and Jesus says it's because your flesh is weak. And we want to say, why was that? Now I'm going to give you my answer, but you can investigate it later on your own. Because I think this almost invites an investigation of the whole book of Matthew. But I believe that these men were weak because they had a heart problem. And that heart problem shows up all the way through the chapters before chapter 26. You know, about a year ago, I developed a heart problem, literally. I began to have an irregular heartbeat. Now, I didn't, wasn't aware that my heart was beating irregularly, but it was. All I felt was its effects for quite a while. I would wake up in the morning, and unlike me normally, I would wake up and I would just be incredibly tired. I would get a long night's rest, but I would be tired. I'd have these big black circles under my eyes. And I couldn't understand. I was eating right, I was sleeping right, but I was just tired all the time. And I would go to work and I'd kind of slug my way through work, but that's what I felt like, a slug. I'd go out and jog with some friends and I felt like I had concrete boots on. And I couldn't understand why. I couldn't make the connection between the effects and my heart. But there was a connection, as I later found out. I had an irregular heartbeat. These men, I bet if you ask them, why couldn't you stay awake? Why couldn't you pray? Just like I might ask some of you, why can't you control your anger? Why don't you have any desire for Bible study? Why isn't it that you are so impatient all the time? I could ask you that question. And you would wonder... It's a good question. And you'd think, yeah, why is that? I try to get a hold of that, but I just can't. But oftentimes, we're not aware until somebody opens us up and says, you know what the real problem is? It's not these effects. Those are just the tip of the iceberg. The problem is there's something much deeper going on. There's a problem with the heart and how you're deliberating there every day. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what I want you to see for the rest of the message. So stay right on that point. When you look deep in the hearts of these men, what they had formulated for their lives was a wrong goal in life. Their goal, and I could prove this to you if we had the time, but their goal was simply to be great. It wasn't to be godly. And when I say great, greatness means different things to different people, but I think they wanted to be famous, powerful, rich, influential, self-important, prideful about where they were. Those were the kind of things that were wrapped up in this word greatness. I believe it's the goal of the human race and every person in this room outside of Christ and outside of the influence of Christ for you to be great. For you to somehow, however you determine that, to be important, to be powerful. However you've garnered that in your heart, unless God has cleaned that out. But all through these, the lives of these men, even as they followed Christ, that kept surfacing. Remember they asked Jesus, can we sit at your right hand when you go into glory? Your left hand? Remember Jesus caught them in this debate about who was going to be the greatest? It was an unhealthy desire. Now, wanting to be great in God's kingdom, that's different. But they wanted just to be great as they defined greatness. And they wouldn't tell Jesus 
They didn't put it on the surface. They wouldn't let everybody know. But every day, that's how they deliberated in their heart. Over and over and over again. That's how they tried to manage life. So they could be important. So they could have things. They could be influential. They could be prideful. In their hearts, they were crucially flawed. Yes, they loved Jesus. But their goal in life was significantly different than the life of Jesus and His life. Remember Romans 5, we are saved by His life. But they didn't want His life. They didn't want His godliness and His pursuit. They wanted to be with Jesus, yes, but they equated greatness with importance. While Jesus had an entirely different deliberation in His heart, He defined greatness as godliness. And that's all. So Jesus was going to be crucified. And He told these men that before this garden experience. But you know, here's how those deliberations begin to skew even these events. When they walked into the garden, knowing Jesus was going to be crucified, in their desire and yearning for greatness, they thought, well, Jesus can pull this off. Maybe He is going to be crucified, but gosh, I've seen Him getting, do a lot of other things that were just incredible. I mean, He could raise people from the dead. Maybe He'll raise Himself from the dead. But surely He's going to usher in this kingdom and man will be in the first line. So, yeah, that may be a problem, but hey, Jesus will take care of it. We, we, everything's going to be okay. He'll pull it off. So they didn't feel any need to feel what Jesus felt when they walked into that garden because of where their heart was. Now, they didn't tell Him that. So in the garden that night, the hearts of these men beat irregularly with the vision of greatness. While Jesus' heart in that same garden beat fast with the vision of the hard obedience that was going to be before Him in just a few hours. And because their heart was irregularly beating, they had no strength in the members of their flesh to do the things that Jesus was doing because they saw no need to do those things. It drained all the strength away. And many of us struggle with certain activities like Bible study or prayer. Ever feel like that? Or, or, or things like service. And we say, why don't I... You know, the church asks for this or they need this or I need to be in the Word more. But I don't feel any need. I feel weak. I feel listless. And everybody's talking about how exciting it is, but I don't feel that. Why? Because we haven't made where the connection is. And the connection is, is there a, is there a problem deep in here? Because those activities, like Bible study or whatever, they don't fit with my goal. And I don't say that consciously because I don't want to believe that. But subconsciously, it's true. I've got other goals in mind, so I need other things to get me there. Not these things, because these things are moving me to godliness. And godliness isn't my goal. Greatness is my goal. So I'll just kind of hang around the church. The Gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness, in its totality, is saying something to the human race that the human race has never heard before. And that is that the end product of man, the reason for man's existence, is godliness, not greatness. 
You see, most societies, when they're small, they finally figure out what disciplines they need to do to be great. And many of those disciplines are good. But when that nation like Greece and Rome and America finally get to be great, they've achieved their goal and there's no reason to be good. And see, we get into trouble and we say, yeah, I'll cooperate and do these good things if they'll get me to my goal of greatness. But believe me, if you get there, you'll discard the good if your heart's not right. That's why it's so difficult to pray, I feel like. Or to serve. It's because these things aid us to godliness. Not greatness. But now look at Jesus in comparison. Something else is churning in His heart. He knew He was about to be crucified. His flesh was absolutely horrified at having to do that. And it didn't want to do that. And that's why He's there struggling. But you know why He's struggling? He's off in solitude and prayer. And what He is doing is trying to align Himself again so that He can accomplish His goal. And what is He using to help Himself get to that goal of pleasing God? He's using prayer as an assistant. He is using solitude. He's asking for support from His men because He wants to align Himself using those aids to get Him to obey His Father. And that's what He's doing there in the garden. And so He goes off in solitude and realizing that these activities, prayer, quietness, and those things, are absolutely essential to Him preparing Himself. He wasn't going to chance it that in the next few hours, he'd just kind of take a little nap, and in the next few hours, when all these men approach him and accost him, he wasn't going to take the chance that his flesh would just automatically respond to God. He was going to prepare himself through these disciplines in private so that he could assure himself that his flesh would respond in godliness. And so that's why he prayed, but not his disciples. You see, their thoughts... And their deliberations underneath their chest was of grandeur. The idea of responding rightly to God in some pressurized moment yet in the future was not even in their thoughts. They didn't even relate that because they had no, no place to relate to. So they didn't think about those things. Why pray? Pray about what? You only pray when you're in trouble. Jesus might have some trouble here. Oh, we'll shoot up a little prayer. Lord, help Jesus. Amen. And fall asleep. But we're not in trouble. There's no pressure around me right now. There's no thought of what might come. Besides, I think that I'll just get a little rest. And the reason I'll get a little rest is because I want to be fresh tomorrow to enjoy what's going to happen. Because isn't that what life's for? To enjoy? See, they were doing things in line with their life's goal. That's why it made sense to sleep. That's why it was so hard to pray. And now the hour comes. Notice in verse 45, Jesus suddenly awakens these men with the statement, Behold, the hour is at hand. Now we're going to move out of practice, men, into the arena of performance. And as you look through these following verses, and you think about Jesus and Peter in particular, you see a totally different performance. Notice they come up in verse 47 with the elders and this great multitude with Judas to portray Jesus. And yet you don't see Jesus now grieved 
are struggling. You see Jesus under control. Notice He says, friend, verse 50, do what you have to do. And then look at the response of Peter. It doesn't name his name, but it does in another Gospel. One of those, namely Peter, in verse 51, who was with Jesus, reached and drew out his sword and he struck the slave of the high priest and he cut off his ear. Now let me tell you, was that, was that consistent with his Christianity? No. Was it consistent with his life goal? Yes. Because if they take Jesus away, I won't be famous. If they take Jesus away, if this whole thing flops now after I've given three years of my life to it, I won't have what I want. And so at that point, I'm going to draw my flesh, and out of the flesh is anger and murder and dissension and factions and killing. So he draws on the wealth of his flesh. He's well rested. And he does what's consistent with his heart to get what he wants, but it doesn't work. And so in the end, Jesus tells everybody to put their clubs and stuff away, and then the disciples watching that say, He's not going to fight. He's not going to fight for what we gave ourselves to Him for. And so look at verse 56. Then all the disciples left Him and fled. If we're not going to get what we want, then so long. Now they didn't think it through like that consciously. But the Bible says you need to watch over your heart with all diligence because it influences everything that you do. Most of the time, we react without consciously thinking. And that's why you have to pull away in those moments and take a look at your heart because it's driving the machinery of your life. But look at Jesus. <laughs> Here He is. He's prepared Himself and He is under control in the arena of performance. He's at peace with Himself. He is powerful. And He is doing what is His heart's desire. And that is pleasing God even though it's going to cost Him His life. And how was He able to change like that? Because He had prepared Himself in private. He chose disciplines like prayer and solitude, though there are many others, to rigorously prepare Himself in private for this public moment. And in doing so, He declared by His life, now I want you to hear me on this, He declared by, by His life that these disciplines are not just things Christians can do to keep themselves busy, like prayer, or service, or whatever it might be. These aren't things that just keep inter Christians entertained until Jesus comes. These things are the ingredients, the disciplines that bring change. And Jesus needed these things to keep His flesh changing to please God. His life tells, them, tells us these things are necessary if we're to reach our goal of godliness. And He practiced them. And by His life, you are saved. Or you're not. I think in our own moments, if we come to the conclusion that we have chosen not as the end point of our life, as the center of our heart, godliness, then I want to assure you everything in your life, Christian-wise, will be out of focus and irregular. The disciplines of prayer, worship, Bible study, fasting, giving, that Jesus said were His essentials to live life, to please God, they will be out of focus as well. They will be... Well, here's how they'll feel to you. And some of you feel this way about these things anyway. They will feel like meaningless obligations to my flesh. Like duties that I need to 
check off from time to time, but they won't have any real relevance. There won't be any real urging to get those things done. And the reason is, is because those things are aiding us to godliness, but if that's not our goal, they are meaningless. And our attitude and our emotions towards those things is only revealing the symptoms of an irregular heartbeat in our soul. When times are good, we kind of hang around the church and pick at these disciplines just so we can say we did them. When times are bad, we usually choose one discipline for at least a little while, and that's prayer. And we cry out to God because what we're trying to do is enlist God at that moment to, to give us or to help us keep what we want. But then after we've got it, it's easy just to slide back, isn't it? But for the most part, if my goal is not godliness, here's how I'm going to feel in the flesh. Weak at Bible study. Weak at prayer. Weak at fellowship. Weak at giving. Weak at serving. Weak at sacrifice. I'm always having to pump myself up. And then I go try to get a quick fix like an experience. You know, or somebody telling me just to have faith, just kind of get me up for a moment. But you know what? You don't just perform. You have to practice in private what you want to perform. Whenever I see a person's spiritual life get excited, whenever I see this gleam in their eye and all of a sudden the Word is alive to them, they're excited about what God is doing in their life, usually it's because that person, somehow they got the message with all the noise, somehow they finally heard Jesus' words, follow me. And they believed Him at His Word. They said, okay, I'll do it. And then all of a sudden, Bible study makes sense. Prayer makes sense. And being around other Christians and being accountable makes sense. And all the other disciplines make sense because Jesus said that's how He became obedient and changed. And I'm saved by His lifestyle even as I'm saved by His cross. What you have before you on your outline for me to finish is a series of statements, and it looks like a long thing, but it's not. I'm just going to read through them. They're kind of me summarizing what I'm trying to say, and I'm trying to say it as best I can to you, ladies and gentlemen, because I think in the messages that follow when we start talking about Christian activities that help bring change, if your heart isn't right, you're going to be bored through the rest of my messages because they'll seem meaningless to you, and they won't excite you. Because your goal is greatness, how you define it, not godliness. So on this outline are just a series of statements. First of all, just a summation of what I've said in kind of principle form. Heart secrets from Jesus' life that save us. And when I say save us, I mean changes, sanctification. The first is this. Jesus' life teaches us that we must constantly be resetting our heart before God. And you know why I say that? Because Jesus had to constantly reset His heart before God. Imagine this God in the flesh. He's about to embark on His public ministry. And what does God do, the Father, do for His Son as He's about to embark on His ministry? It's in Matthew 4. He sends Him out to the desert. And what does He do in the desert? He does what some of us think are irrelevant activities. At least we'd never do that. He fasts. He gets alone for a long time, out of the noise. We don't like to be alone. 
He prays. He studies God's Word and takes it into his own life. And why is he doing that? Because his mission is to please his Father. That's his goal. And he's gathering all the resources and strength he can and setting his heart to doing that no matter what temptation comes. And you know at the end of the fast, temptation does come. And the devil comes and does the first thing you would think he would do. He takes Jesus up on a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, all its glory, all its glitter, and he says, it's all yours if you'll just follow, fall down and worship me. Now let me tell you, if that had been me, if that had been Peter, if that had been James, it would have been so easy to go, yeah. And you know why? Because that fits. That fits why I'm in this. I'm in this for fame. I'm in this to look good. And so that would be something to reach out to, just like Adam and Eve did. But see, Jesus had a different goal, and as tempting as that was to his flesh, he was prepared, and he said no. Now, do you remember in the middle of his ministry? He was up healing all these people and causing all this positive activity early in his ministry. Around Galilee, and people were coming out, and it was so exciting, and people said, this guy's famous. The, the disciples said, we're going to be famous. And at the very height of that positive celebration, Jesus went out alone. And he prayed all night. And what was he doing? He was resetting his heart because he was tempted to slip into fame. And at the end of that night, everybody in the city's gathered and the disciples find him, and Peter in particular, and says, Lord, they're all there. We got them in the palm of our hand. But to this ambitious, self-serving disciple, Jesus goes, Let's go. Let's go from here. Because I was called to preach the gospel in all of Israel. And he leaves it. And can you imagine those disciples standing there as Jesus is walking out and they're looking this way at him and they're going, you know, trying to pull these two worlds together. And why are they trying to pull these two worlds together? Because they want both, just like you and me. But it can't be done. The chief end of man is to glorify Him. And so Jesus left. And then at the end of His ministry, here He is in the garden doing exactly the same thing. And I would ask you, I would submit to you, if Jesus had to constantly reset His heart against the temptations of life, using prayer and solitude and those kind of things, don't you think you do? Maybe that's why you haven't changed for the better. Maybe that's why in the midst of all your advancement and new things and new toys, you get worse, not better. And yet you can't understand why because you keep going to church and community group. Could it be an irregular heartbeat? Secondly, Jesus' life teaches us that we must work at preparing our flesh to perform. Every person here lives in two phases of life all the time. One is preparing for life. One is performing in life. And how you prepare determines how you perform. And in our passage, at least in this moment, Jesus was not performing in Gethsemane. He was preparing. Many of us are concerned why I can't get a hold of temptation. Why I can't conquer this habit that just keeps coming up in my life again and again. Why I overeat. Why I overdrink. Why I'm impulsive at buying things. Why I fall to these thoughts that I have. We fall flat 
for one reason. Not that we're not trying, but we fall flat because we're not willing to practice Jesus' lifestyle and train. That's why. Because you've got to train to perform. You don't think those athletes you'll watch on TV this afternoon just showed up for the game, you know, after being in the Bahamas this week. You don't think the concert violinist just gets up and plays. He practices. And the practices that Jesus' life gives us are the keys to accomplishing the goal, if that is our goal. That's what I want you to hear me say this morning. And then finally, Jesus' life teaches us that God will honor our efforts at change with the grace to change. Change is not all up to us. And I hope it doesn't sound like that. Change is positioning yourself along the lines of the life of Jesus Christ so that you might receive the grace of God from heaven the same way He received the grace of God from heaven as He practiced these disciplines. Paul says it succinctly. If you sow to the Spirit, that's your part. You will reap eternal life from the Spirit. That's God's part. He will honor your efforts at change by changing you, but you must follow the life of Christ. Those words are still just as radical today as they were in the first century. Now let me conclude by filling the last few statements out. You know, last time I asked you to take one area, and I hope you did this, some of you may not have, just to take one area that you're struggling with changing and to interact with that first message and just see if you got any insights. Here are some additional things that I would like you to ponder in regards to this area that you struggle with so much. Could it be, letter A, that I may be seeking change from God, this area, that has nothing to do with advancing the will of God in my life? Could it be that the change that I seek is just because I've got something I want God to do for me when it is still not clear yet that God is here not to give you what you want, but to make you like Himself? Secondly, I may be seeking change as a pseudo-player when it comes only by being a player. Now listen very closely. There are many who are here there are many men and women in life who grow up around the church and they have learned a very bad habit. And that is that they have got their goals in life. Don't bother me. I'm going to do what I want to do. But I'll hang around the church in just enough moments that will keep me from going too far in what I'm pursuing so I won't get in trouble. And so we kind of use the church and godly people and we like to be around godly people. We like to hang around a strong spiritual man or a strong spiritual woman because they help balance our life because we're not going to balance it. But they're going to help balance our life by just kind of helping us and it kind of becomes an unhealthy codependent relationship. So I'm kind of riding their spiritual coattails just like these men were riding Jesus' coattails but they were weak. They were just hanging around. And it didn't occur to them that they weren't there just to hang around as a pseudo-player if they were going to be with Jesus, although it would occur to them later, they had to adopt His lifestyle to become like Him. Not to live the way they want and, and receive the grace of God through being closely associated with a godly person. Thirdly, I need to be willing 
to train to change. And that introduces us in some respects to some of the disciplines that I will begin to talk about next time. But let me tell you, if you don't practice, don't try. Because you're just going to frustrate yourself. Don't get out there and say, now today I'm not going to gossip. And so you go out there and when people start conversing, you start saying exaggerate. I can't gossip. I, you just keep trying harder. It's, it's, it's a mistake. You can't play if you don't practice. You need to be back drawing upon Scripture and prayer and solitude and fasting and giving and service and buffeting your body and withholding things from yourself and practicing discipline so that in that moment you can perform righteously. There's no other way. And then finally, I need to be aware of what training methods best release the grace of God in my life. Some disciplines will be better for your life than others, but we have to wait till we get to discussing those disciplines before you can begin to make those kind of conclusions. Now let me conclude with this. I have looked at my life using these, this information in these last few weeks, and I've studied. I studied it all summer. And I looked at my life, and I confess to you this morning that as I did, I saw things in my life in which I was using the church and using my vocation and using you just to advance me. And I was ashamed of that. And I realized that I would never enjoy life until I finally came to the place where I said, enough of self-advancement. Until I came to the place where I finally said, is my goal, is my joy, just to be godly. And when I put that yoke on, it's not heavy. It's when I add all the other things that I want to do on top of that, that it crushes me into the ground. Because there is a simplicity to Christ. There is a simplicity to following Him. There's a simplicity of life that's right before us. But we can never, ever see it until our heart beats regularly. And so I want you to know, as we conclude, we cannot go on with this discussion of change if your heart chooses to be wrong. It's up to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce as far as the division of joint and marrow, of soul and spirit. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And Heavenly Father, I confess that there is selfishness still there, but I commit afresh I reset my heart to follow You. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that some of the discouragements and failures, some of the frustrations at not being different, I pray for them and I ask that You help them see their heart for what it is. And that they would make sure that it only says one thing. I am willing 
above all else to follow you. You alone, Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy of my allegiance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.